Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm really excited to have on the show with me very special guests, Katie Turner and Josh Miller. Katie and Josh, welcome to Filmstrip. Tell folks a little bit about yourselves. Thanks, Jay. Uh, My name is Katie, and I work with Jay's wife, Rachel. That's how I know Jay. I'm also a big fan of his other podcast, Career Bits, which I'm also tuned into. And uh, I'm just really tickled to be invited to review this movie, Forbidden Zone. And uh, I'm Josh. I'm married to Katie, who works with Rachel, who (laughs) knows you. So uh, that's how I got grouped into this. And I'm also excited to uh, talk about the the film. It's been a a little while since I'd seen it when we rewatched it for this. And so that was a fun experience. Yeah, because I got to know which one of you came up with this. But we'll get to that in just a minute. So today, (laughs) obviously, we are reviewing Forbidden Zone, starring Hervé Villachez, Susan Tyrell, Marie Pascale Elfman, Danny Elfman, Giselle Lindley, Jan Stewart Schwartz, Virginia Rose, Ugg Fudge Wana, Phil Gordon, the only guy that got paid on this movie, by the way, <laughs> Hyman Diamond, Tashiro Baloney, Viva, Joe Spinell, and the Kipper Kids, directed by Richard Elfman, released in 1982 on $100,000 budget. Best I could find, it made about $9,000 at the box office, but somehow holds this amazing rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is considered this cult classic. So I'm familiar with Danny Elfman. I don't know many people who aren't. I knew he came from a family of artists and they did a lot of stuff and they did a lot of experimental musical theater and things like that. But I had never delved into any of this. I'd only heard stories about this movie. So this was a first time for me. So I'll throw it to you two. Who came up with this and what's your history with Forbidden Zone? Yeah, so I uh, first saw kind of bits and pieces of this movie when I was in college at uh, a friend's house. It was kind of a party, and it it seemed like the kind of movie that was probably best consumed that way. Um, No one's paying a whole lot of attention to it. It's kind of like fun wallpaper in the corner. If you're trying to have a weird party, this is a good sort of addition to it. Um, And then I rewatched the entire thing in uh, kind of one sitting a few years later, uh, just because it, for some reason I kind of remembered to, to think of it a little bit um, and then had kind of promptly forgotten about it uh, until Katie started asking me about weird movies. Um, so I occasionally uh, teach uh, film and politics classes. Um, occasionally there'll be some reference to, to a film where we end up getting talking about weird movies and this one sometimes comes up. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of those that was kind of like a very college kind of a movie. To, uh, to see. And this was my first experience with Forbidden Zone. And it was an interesting one. I am, I'm a fan of midnight movies. I enjoy movies um, by John Waters. And uh, like last weekend, we watched, rewatched Valley of the Dolls and watched Beyond the Valley of the Dolls back to back. And so I do enjoy a bit of camp, but this was, this felt like a very different kind of movie, even though it still had that same level of camp. Yeah, I, I feel you know, the John Waters part of things. And I kind of got that at least in my head, that that was what I was going to be watching. And that's not exactly the experience I had with this. I'll tell y'all what I, what I came up with doing this, but I, it, it was a, it was an interesting experience to go about because uh, 
this movie is it's in two versions. It was originally shot in black and white. And that's how I watched it. Both times I watched it. Now, the first time, admittedly, I watched it on YouTube and I, some dubbed version. It was still in English, but like there were French subtitles. It was a little distracting, but I got through that that way. And then I found a cleaner copy of it elsewhere and, and watched it straight through. And but it was still in black and white. So I haven't seen the colorized version of it. Have either of you seen it in color? Yeah, we both watched it in color um, both times. We watched it twice. The first time I had no idea what they were saying. So I had to watch it again and watched it with subtitles uh, so I could understand. There are some um, sort of French accents going on. There's some regional like Baltimore sounding accents going on. Like it's really. And then, of course, the the songs that come along that drive a lot of the plot are also sung really quickly. And so the first time I watched it, I sort of tuned out after I like sort of couldn't figure out what was going on based on the the dialogue. Um, and then rewatched it again, the colorized version with subtitles and watching it with the subtitles was a game changer. The first time I just kind of completely discarded it. I think I got frustrated, honestly, because it seemed like just this crazy mesh of weird characters and random song sequences. And, um, honestly, I think the uh the first part of it was actually kind of offensive i was i was totally turned off by this heroin dealer blackface bit in the at the first part of the movie so after watching it again with the subtitles it felt a lot different and i cannot imagine trying to watch it in black and white because the color does so much for the visual part of the film, which is really, I think, what you would watch it for. Honestly, the aesthetics, not obviously not the plot, because it's fairly thin on that. But yeah, I feel like it's definitely worth it to, to watch in color experience and the aesthetics. Yeah, it's funny. I, I must have seen it in both black and white and color, though I'd always remembered it in color. But when I first saw it, it had not yet been colorized. So I must have seen it the first time through in black and white, but in my memory, it had always been in color. So I don't know. Take it that way you will. What amazes me about it is that um, there were enough fans of this movie for it to actually be colorized like 20 years later. Yeah, they got crowdfunded. That's what I was I was going to say. I, I read about that, that enough people got behind this. And that's why I said the the cult following of this. But Josh, the way you framed how you saw this, I think is exactly how this kind of a movie gets a following is you have to watch it with a group of friends that it is some sort of an experience. It's the weird Wednesday night. You didn't have anything else to do. And this is what you were doing together. And it just burns in your memory. I mean, it's like the times we all figured out how to sink Pete Floyd up to Wizard of Oz. It's just one of those things that you want to do. And I will say this about the plot. I, I was thinking to myself of the 200 and something episodes of film strip. Have I ever had a plot summary that was harder to write? including like after the last season, which people who've listened to the show for a long time know that is what I hold up as my Moby Dick of like the worst movie ever. It cannot be understood. Uh, it can only be consumed. But I think I found a plot in that. This one, I I have never rewritten something more than the paragraph I'm about to read in my entire history of podcasting. So congratulations. You, you finally brought something to the table that I didn't know how to describe when I was watching. Leave it to my husband to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a movie that's better with drugs. <laughs> 
But, you know, the funny thing is you, you, you're not a drug person. So how but he the, came to this movie. But the party was with the drug people. And that, uh, and that oh, makes it, that, yeah. that makes it kind of, I think that's where you kind of need to be a little bit with, with this. With it's definitely a, you have to surround yourself with seedy characters when you watch this movie. Which is amazing because this movie is all about seedy characters. It so, really is. Yeah. But I think I'll get into it. Let's lay out the plot summary for maybe the, the uninitiated. This is the best I can summarize of what happens. And we're not going to walk through this piece by piece because I don't know that we ever could. We're going to kind of talk around everything that happens. But here's what I think this movie is about. Frenchie Hercules lets her curiosity and an errant roller skate on the floor get the best of her as she steps through a mysterious door in her family's basement. The doorway leads to a place called the Sixth Dimension, ruled by King Fausto and his jealous Queen Doris. Doris takes Frenchie prisoner and the Hercules family, along with their friend Squeeze It Henderson, follow to rescue her. There are musical numbers that take place in schools, prisons, septic tanks, and torture chambers where we meet all the unwitting captives of the dimension. When Frenchie is held captive, the queen's daughter, the inexplicably and perpetually topless princess, is captured by Satan and his knights of the Oingo Boingo uh, with help from Squeeze It. As Doris is about to kill Frenchie, she's confronted by the ex-queen, who is led there by Flash and Gramps, each of whom is dispatched before proving useful. The two queens fight and even kind of make out before Doris throws the uh, throws the old queen off the cliff. And just as she's about to kill Frenchie, King Fausto tells her that if the, the, she does that, the princess is going to die. So Ma Hercules shows up uh, out of a stupor and shoots Queen Doris. So queen, uh, King Fausto mourns the death of his queen, but gets over it kind of quick, marries Frenchie, makes her the queen. And then the survivors join in a mournful musical celebration number before exploding into stardust and credits roll. And I got questions. That's really good. That seems like the best any of us could come up with, honestly. <laughs> I think the framing device of this is you have to put to, I'm trying to give people a mindset of what to expect when you walk into this movie. And I'm glad you mentioned it too, Katie, because right out of the gate, Richard Elfman wants you to know, I'm going to offend you and I do not care. And he talks about how he purposely set out to make something that would offend everyone at the same time. And we open up with a local pimp slash heroin dealer in blackface hiding a stash in a basement of a, a flop house he owns. And we get this uh, Betty Boop style animation sequence and, I don't know, step and fetch it routine that is just really out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, I one way that I really like to think about this movie um and this is part of, I think, maybe why we were watching it to begin with was that, um, you know, Danny Elfman was sort of the wrote the soundtrack for a lot of our like young lives. So if you were a young kid in the early 90s from, you know, Pee Wee Herman and the Tim Burton, everything Tim Burton, but especially like Batman. And then really in a lot of ways, I think this movie was kind of a precursor for uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, but, you know, Danny Elfman was like this guy who was like kind of like the sort of wacky, but still very sort of mainstream culture guy, right? He's like, you know, weird science guy. Um, and so to discover this kind of earlier film that, as I was saying to Katie earlier, was a little bit more magical when it was hard to find stuff like this. Um, but to kind of find a weird movie like this that was just like, oh, you know, the guy who does the theme song for The Simpsons? Yeah, this is what he like started off doing. Um, it, it's incredibly offensive, but then also just so like sort of strange that, I mean, you have this, you know, very like kind of typical, but very cool animation sequence. And then everything just feels 
very kind of fever dreamish after that. And I think that that's really kind of what, um, you know, if you have a mindset about going into this, just sort of have like a Tim Burton kind of hat on a little bit. And I think that it'll help you to appreciate what there is to appreciate a little bit in this movie. Yeah. And uh, you failed to mention in your summary how people access the sixth dimension, Jay. Could you please summarize that for us? It's either a sewer or an intestine line or something. I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to be. It's very It looks like an intestine, right? So it looks like they're going and then when they pop out the other end, their butt cheeks that they're so they're like going down somebody's intestinal track and then getting crapped out into the sixth dimension. The only way I took it, it was on the second viewing that was like, you're literally going to the ass end of dimensions with with this. That's that's what this wants you to do. And I think that the way to understand this too, you, you nailed it, Josh, is that this is an art project. And it is, it's not there for narrative. And it, I don't even know that it has commentary that it's trying to say. It's more about how avant-garde can we be? And something that I only know now because Ron and I did those Marx Brothers movies back in March this year. The Marx Brothers influence on this is unbelievable. I even texted Ron. I said, dude, imagine if the Marx Brothers just decided to be as absolutely out there and filthy and weird as they could be that would be this movie. And he went and watched it and texted me last night and said, wow, you're totally right. And I mean, th- I mean the flash character that Phil Gordon's playing is totally Chico and in, in every way. And I, I really got that aesthetic off of this. And I only would know that now having recently revisited those, but it was, it was a neat thing to see and now realize, Oh wow. The pay it forward part of it is that I think a lot of Rob zombies weirdness comes from this movie. Yeah. It's funny. If you, um, watch you can find like like i said these things used to be more magical and they're hard to find but now you can go onto youtube and find these compilations of just i think you just search for something as simple as like weird cartoons 1930s 1940s like silent cartoons and it's like if you did a live action version of those in a lot of ways what they're doing is they're animating you know sort of like a louis armstrong kind of jim crow bojangles kind of a character um, in the forties. Right. And it's got this kind of, yeah, and I think that kind of holds together with the music as well, but that aesthetic combined with the Marx brothers, I think you're right. Kind of gives the whole thing this, um, it's, it's a weird feeling, right? Because in a lot of ways, these are sort of, you know, like Betty Boop is in this kind of certain way, a very commercial, very mainstream kind of part of Americana now. But if you go back to like where Betty Boop came from, that was really weird stuff, you know, and I think they kind of helped to appreciate the weirdness from which a lot of these characters that a lot of us have now kind of grown up with kind of came from. And it really recaptures that strangeness, I think, in a really nice way. Yeah, it's just the mashup of the vaudeville aesthetic with 1930s musical theater. And then there's obviously a lot of European influence in it as well. Um, and a lot of French theater influence too. And it, it also feels very new wavy in a sense. Um, so yeah, it's just the aesthetic of it alone. I mean, like I said, I think that's part of the, the argument for watching the colorized version is you get more of that and it comes out a little bit more, but also the set design. I think Marie Pascal Elfman designed the sets and they're mostly black and white, which is, you know, uh, interesting. Like it actually makes you want to go watch the black and white version to see how the sets look in black and white. 
um, because I'm sure that's primarily why they're designed that way. But um, but watching the color, watching the characters basically colorize against the black and white, it's very striking. It, yeah. it really is. It makes it look way more amateurish. Yeah, right? it does. So like in the black and white version, you can imagine it looking a little bit like, you know, German expressionism, sort of cabinet of Dr. Caligari, kind of stark and cool in a way. But when you watch it in color, you realize, like, if it cost $100,000 to make this, that's phenomenal right like it, it was it, it's very sophomore and very amateurish kind of art house kind of production yeah, we made the joke that phil gordon was the only guy that got paid like that was real anybody that got paid turned their check back into the production herbie villachay talked about he would hang around on the sets on the weekend and help him paint the backdrop like everybody that was in this was totally into whatever this was going to be and that's what blows my mind is like the cult of personality that richard elfman must have been <laughs> to have gotten a group of, of artists to just buy into we're going to do this wacky thing and it's going to be a musical, but unlike normal musicals that drive the plot, the music really has nothing to do. It's just more weird on top of weird on top of weird. And then Danny gets to play Satan, which like, no, no, who could, it was a real stretch, you know, and, and it all works out. And I, to watch it, I haven't watched it the second time again. Cause remember the first time this just sort of flooded me with like, I, I don't know what I just saw <laughs> watching it again gave me so much more of an, okay. Now knowing that the weird part is there and that there is no plot really, that it is just, let's be weird. Watching how dedicated everybody was to doing it and how sold they are in the parts. And you you mentioned that she was the, also the art director. Marie Pascale Elfman was Richard Elfman's wife at the time. She's the best thing about this. And because she plays Dorothy or Alice in Wonderland, but with more of that Betty Boop and smart mentality and stuff. I don't know. I, I really dug her. Yeah, I did too. I felt like she she really... I don't, and I'm not sure if she ever went on to do anything else after this, honestly. But I feel like she could have been a very successful actor had she wanted to to be one, a serious one. I, all I've ever known, she did one more thing, and then I think she did a lot of art direction, and uh, she does a lot of theater and musical theater. I mean, all this was when Oingo Boingo, before they became the rock band that maybe most of us know, that I got introduced to and back to school, by the way, when they were playing at, at uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield's party. By the way. Great scene, by the way. Uh, Dead Man's Party is a great tune. But this is before they transitioned into more of that pop rock mainstream stuff. And Danny Elfman wanted to do that because he was tired of leading a musical theater troupe. Richard had been in the band and was moving out of that to do more of this kind of stuff. And it kind of handed it over to Danny. And Danny wanted to do this as kind of a so long to musical theater. So this was his farewell to that. And you can kind of hear it as the music progresses because it's very theater-esque, the, the numbers early on. And then by the end, when we get to, especially when you get to like the Satan songs, that's a pop song. I mean, it really is. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of jazz and there's a lot of scat too and call and response, especially the Satan one, especially there's a, a call and response um, there between him and the course, I guess the mystics, right? Like who are there? Um, so yeah, the range of musical influences is really interesting there as well, but also like, again, with the cultural appropriation, right? Like I think Elfman gets in trouble for that quite a bit because while he is an equal opportunity offender, he's an offender for sure in this movie and definitely co-ops a lot of different cultural things, even like the, the, way that Marie plays the Frenchie character is yes. um, is very much um, 
offensive toward French people in a lot of ways. It's, it's very like much Pepe Le Pew is, yeah, is, is yeah. offensive. It's the same way, but just cranked to 10. And the funny thing is, I'm listening to her talk and I'm going, if we, for some reason, wanted to do a modern remake of this, you get Marianne Cotillard to do this and it totally fits because the voice is the same. Except Marianne Cotillard would probably never do this, and she's much classier. <laughs> but but you're right to call that out that she plays the stereo. Everybody's playing a stereotype of something, oh, and yeah. that's what's interesting is that there is no straight man, and mm-hmm. she's kind of the straightest one. I guess Satan is just Satan, but everything else is a stereotype of something, and just the idea of let me make a movie where the entire cast of characters is a stereotype of something and what that would look like is a neat way to jumble the marbles on the table. But like you say, I'm not sure that he's making any kind of like, I I think you're doing kind of almost too much to it. If you're trying to read any commentary into that. Mm -hmm. And I, I could see how, you know, after the fact reviewing this, you know, he might kind of try to come up with something that he was trying to do there, but you get very much the sense that like, this was again, the kind of thing that, you know, a 15 year old go like, Oh, that's really weird. Whoa. Right. And that's about the level of like commentary that you're going to get from this. Right. It's like, Oh, we've got this kind of archetypal sort of, um, you know, Jim Crow ass kind of character. Let's just make him a heroin dealer. Yeah. Yeah. Ha ha. Right. And like the, the ABC song kind of the classroom set up, you know, every character doing everything. It's like, it's just offensive for offensiveness's sake. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you've got sixties and seventies style shaft pimps shooting each other in the classroom mm-hmm. and just like, uh, you know, whatever, because I think you're exactly right. There is no larger meaning to this. What I said is that let's take the weirdest colored marbles, put them in the bag, shake it up, throw it in the pot and see what it looks like when they all smash. That's what this movie is. It's a Jackson Pollock. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely Googled, is Richard Elfman Jewish because of the Yiddish Charleston song in there? Um, we, you yeah. know, I'm like, is is this song? This has to be. There's no way he's got to be. And he was. He was raised in a Jewish family. So um, there's a little bit of like inside cultural humor going on, too, there. Yeah. Um, that if you're not a part of that culture, you're a little bit sort of shocked by in in a way. Yeah, the guy who plays Gramps is credited as Hyman Diamond. That's not his real name. They no. made that up because he was the accountant on the movie and he, he was in it and Richard Elfman didn't know how he wanted to be credited. So he, he said, eh, everything else is offensive. Let me just do that too. Just oh, yeah. Off. And I mean, there are movies that have done this throughout history and they're either like to service like comedy and that's part of the commentary or they're to service the period of it or they're trying to say something. In this case, though, I really just think it's let me get, and this is where I think Rob Zombie draws from this, is let me get the weirdest stuff I can possibly get and throw it at the screen and just see what people do. So unlike a director, say like William Friedkin or uh, even Roman Polanski, who everything on the screen is, or Christopher Nolan, everything there is there for a reason or whatever. Richard Elfman is like, eh, I don't know, uh, paint it left and then right and I don't know, do a tap dance routine. Yeah, and there's something kind of almost innocent about doing it that way. So you have, like, if we think about the schoolhouse scene, you know, you've got, you know, Flash who's doing intravenous drugs, but it's, there's not like a consequence to that, right? You've got like people shooting at each other, but there's not a lot of horror and gore. Um, You know, even in like the really pervasive well, what about the rape too? There's like well, persistent the rape throughout the entire thing, but it's it's just it's sort of shown as this cartoonish dry humping. 
Yeah, they're, they're always yeah. clothed. Humping each other. They're they're almost always clothed, and so there's this again, this kind of. I mean, it's weird if you don't expect this movie to be one of like wide release, and you're trying to be repulsive. You know, this wasn't like 1940. I mean, you could have very well had everyone naked and done some like pretty horrible, shocking violence kind of art house kind of stuff with that. And they don't, right? I mean, it's it's this kind of weird pullback, kind of cartoonish, but still offensive thing that's kind of going on there. It's it's a weird sort of middle ground for them to pick to to hold. Yeah, let's talk about it. Like the the two people that actually show nudity in the movie, Doris and the princess. Uh, don't really ever have sex. Like Doris makes out with Herman Villachay, the king, because they they were actually exes at the time, which I felt heard they fought like the whole time on the set. But the, you know they they got to do that, and she you know has her shirt off at the end, and then the princess who never has one on is the only character that's not having egregious sex all the time. And I'm like, so that's the flip of it at all. It's like I'm gonna put this very pretty woman out here who's half clothed and she's never going to do anything sexual at all. As a matter of fact, she plays like an innocent child most of the time. Like you would see a baby running around just in its diaper. Yeah, I think that's true. Except for, I would say the scene where she is about to electrocute Frenchie, right? So there's like a scene there where she kind of flips the script and she's no longer innocent, but she's like about to, you know, kill this, the, main character in the movie, the heroine, I guess. If you have to root for somebody in this movie, I guess it's Frenchie, right? I mean... If you We're supposed to, to. I mean, you want yeah. her to get home or to get something. Or, I want to ask about that scene, though, because they've got her to the table. They keep electrocuting her. There's a chorus of people singing, you know, 20,000 volts more. And when she's going to electrocute her, she's going to stick it up the hoo-ha. Yeah. I'm, I almost wonder, I'm like, is that... I mean, again, this movie doesn't have anything to say, so I don't want to attach meaning to it. But I'm like... Why were there and then have it short out at and like then the last the second? Blows, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's that you can't kill Frenchie. I don't know, but like it's it's so hard for me to watch that scene now though and not think about the scene in and again uh, Nightmare Before Christmas mm. where like Santa Claus like he gets like pooped out of the shoot thing kind of like in the sixth dimension and then you've got this like chorus of you know kind of oogie boogie or whoever the like bad guy is in that movie sort of singing around them. It's like that became like this kind of weird prototype again for this sort of weird kids movie where there's like violence that's implied, but right before it actually happens, something happens and you don't actually see Santa Claus getting pulled apart, right? You don't actually see, uh, you know, Frenchie effectively getting sexually assaulted with this 20,000 volt uh, uh, cattle prod kind of a thing. Right. Um, So I don't know. It's weird, but I do like this kind of idea of like, why is the princess always sort of topless? But I like the idea of like her, her being like this kind of diaper, um, cause the only time she does seem to be having sex is with the frog butler guy. Oh yeah. yes. Um, the frog butler. <laughs> but, but that's Bust like a rod. Bust rod is Bust rod. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I like that idea. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's really, that's clever. I mean, I think it's, it's partly due to the cabaret influence to like the toplessness. Cause there, there's another scene I think where they have some extras running around topless as well. And it's just kind of like sort of. I think German cabaret is is what yeah. they're trying to go for there. Um, I, I, I also got the sense of like the same aesthetic that the musical Chicago puts out with the way that everyone performs and, and how it's, it's risque enough, but at the time in it, in its time, Betty Boop, as you mentioned earlier, was incredibly risque. You can't show that, you know, we much more prudish. And so in 1980, 
we had dropped a lot of that. But we were heading into the decade where, as a horror fan, the MPAA became like the bane of everyone's existence for how they would just cut everything to death. And I could see if this again was a wide release movie, they would have just trimmed that entire character or changed the shots to just neck above, you know, because again, she's just walking around naked. But she she's one of the best like tay to tay lines with Frenchie when they finally put Frenchie in the jail cell, which we had the intercut card of that's where he puts his favorite concubines which was kind of a haha joke and she is going back and forth with Frenchie and Frenchie just tells her why don't you just get it on with the butler anyway because it's clear that you want to and they stick tongues out at each other and I'm like it's like a, a schoolyard fight or something but it's but it's good the funny works mm-hmm. yeah it, it works really well too because it's hard to tell exactly how old the children are supposed to be being played by adults so if you're imagining that they're actually you know, eight-year-old kids or whatever going to school, um, then that explains more of their behavior. The fact that you have adults doing it is part of what makes it bizarre, right? Um, but then also like kind of the way that they're dressed and that kind of thing. The fact that Flash is walking around with no pants on all the time, um, you know, it's it sort of in this weird way again, you know, like, you know, it's not – that strange to see like little kids running around without their clothes on because they're little kids, right? It's weird when adults do it. So when adults are playing little kids, in a way, it's the more authentic way of doing that. Um, but also it makes it even more bizarre. But yeah, but they do get these really uh, wonderful kind of opportunities for, for, I think there's some really good dialogue actually in this movie. There, there's very little plot that will hold your interest. And like we said before, I'm not sure it's the kind of thing that you want, you like sit down and you really watch for an hour and 20 minutes, but there's some really good exchanges of dialogue. Um, also like with squeeze it, I think squeeze, it's got some really good little pieces of, of dialogue with the yeah. chicken. Um, they're, they're really very good. Uh, so there's some, there's, there's some good writing going on in this movie. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was written by a combination of people from on Bongo and people that Richard Elfman had worked with and just a part of their whole troop kind of put this together. Matthew Bright, that was kind of the first thing he really worked on as a part of this. And you can, if you know the later works, you can kind of see some of the influence. But again, I'll go back to my Marx Brothers thing, particularly with Flash and what Phil Gordon is doing. Because the other thing is he's he's wearing a beanie, like short shorts and a Cub Scout uniform. You know, and I'm like, he's he. it's when I noticed that the second time around that I thought, just what you said, Josh, these are adults playing kids. So I need to forget I'm looking at grownups and a you know a 60 year old man as it looks like he's probably seven as a character. And so that's what I'm supposed to know because if you look at this guy, he's like a little rotund little doughboy, and yet his name's Flash. Why? I don't know. It doesn't matter because he's a kid. And he's wearing a propeller hat that he uses to break the ex-queen out of her holding cell and rescue her. And that part of the plot, like, I don't know if that even needed to be in the movie, but because nothing ultimately really happens with the ex-queen. She doesn't like exact vengeance or anything like that. I mean, like there's like, you know, it's just, it doesn't seem to, to really fit in, but yeah, I see what you're saying with Flash. Well, and what's weird too, so there are some deleted scenes if you buy like the sort of modern version of this. There are some deleted scenes and, and what they chose to cut was weird because they're actually really crucial plot points. <laughs> it's like they're trying to like they're trying to make it harder to follow. But one of the, you know, kind of things that I guess you just sort of infer and accept is that um uh, Flash and his grandfather are just like working for for King Fausto at some point, right? Cuz he just kind of in the 
uh, final cut just sort of says, you know, kind of get off your, you know, stop having sex and, and get back to work. You know, we've got to go save the queen. And, um, in the, one of the deleted scenes is where he like kind of recruits them in to, to working with them. And, and they're walking in sort of doing sort of goose stepping, seek hiling, uh, to this midget king. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a really offensive scene, right? But there's lots of offensive stuff in the movie. So that, that doesn't seem like a reason to cut it, but it establishes sort of why Flash is trying to get the old queen back, like how they end up in that situation at all. It's just like, you're, you're confused. You're like, Oh, here's like another little mini scene. And now he's sort of liberating slash raping the ex queen. Who's going on about her screenplay. He's got a magical propeller for just that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, and then, you know, we're back to grandpa smashing the, the, you know, what appears to be like kind of ground beef or Chuck or something. Of something. Like yeah. yeah. So, I can tell what that was. Yeah. But it's gross. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> but, I think that's the point is it's supposed to be gross and weird. And I think you've hit on it. You cut that to make it more inexplicable. Because that's the point of the movie is to just be weird. And I'll tell you who I think the ex-queen is borrowing from. Again, this is people that know theater. If you've ever seen a production of uh, You Can't Take It With You or you've seen the old Capra movie, the mom in the Mrs. Sycamore, her name's Penny in there, is the same thing as the ex-queen, except she's not the ex-wife. She's always talking about scripts she's writing and screenplays and she's just kind of dottle-headed and sweet, but just kind of useless in a lot of ways. And I, I only know that because I've seen that production recently and I'm sitting there watching this and I'm going, I don't know if they borrowed from that or not, but these are theater people, so why would they not? Like that totally makes sense that they would build that character around that and she does have you know the end scene i mean she gets the fight with doris at the end and they both end up at the bottom of the pit of hell or whatever together and sort of like well we'll just wait here and rot together now since we're the two ex-wives of the queen yeah even then they don't die right yeah 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 because there's the fish man over here and the two of them in the final number before everything explodes or or and then squeeze it gets decapitated and his head is flying around with wings you know yes because he he talks to chickens while he's on his typewriter (laughs) he's also always making these jerky movements and like sometimes i think is he scratching or is he masturbating because it could be either way I had the same thought. Well, that's the idea, yeah. right? But I love that he gets his head chopped off and he's still useful because if you uh-huh. remember the, the dialogue with the chicken, right? The chicken's like, well, the chickens are always here to do whatever we can for you, right? And he says, but you know what we say? What good What? What, what good is a chicken? What, what can a chicken do? And it's like, oh, yes, exactly. Chickens get their heads cut off. They still run around, right? And so it's like yeah. cleverly like having him fly around and still be useful for people. I think that's awesome. You know, it's perfect. It's it's funny how that works out because the whole point is that the king wants to make sure, can you get rid of my old wife so that I can now marry Frenchie? Because he is obsessed with her the minute he sees her. And I'm sitting there watching that going, you know, as a Game of Thrones fan going like, well, I've only seen that played out, you know, 1500 other horrible ways and and throughout all kinds of other you know, legends and, and feudal times and stuff. And, and, you know, also somebody who's read the Old Testament and stuff, that was not an uncommon thing. Beautiful woman comes in, aside with the old, in with the new. I mean, that's just part of history. We know that. So I, I get his, I get Herbie Villachay's whole thing because it's not very hard to get one, but I think he plays it really well too. Like his, his intentions are always clear. He's not a fighter. He's a lover. Oh, yes. Except that he has this like mysterious zombie army and it's not clear <laughs> like at the very end, right? Where they say now we're unstoppable. Yeah. It's like unstoppable to do what? I mean, right. got the, the, the devil within the sixth dimension, but who's not the boss of the sixth dimension. That's him. 
And then he's got this zombie army of zombie Marines and zombie Navy people. And it's like, is the idea to like invade our dimension or, or like what, what's the, what's the ambition with that? Right. There's a really detailed plot summary uncredited on IMDb of this movie. And it says at the end that everyone talks about the plot to take over the world. And I read that and I'm like, huh, really? Because after I'd watched it the first time, I was just digging up anything I could. And I read that and I was like, I didn't really get that. And then watching it again the second time, I'm like, that is most assuredly not in this film. So I don't know where that comes from either. Yeah, he's always talking about his army. I think it's Doris that calls him out on it. It's like, and a lot of good any of it does. It. So what? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, well, he's got this like sort of obsession with Frenchie in part because she's like of God's people. And it's like this sort of she's- French dynastic thing, right? Yeah, he actually uses the words master race. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah, the, the French are the master race. Yeah, yeah, like the French are the master race. But you know what's funny about that? So so there's all kinds of like anti I mean, it, it's a, it places a deeply anti-Semitic movie, right? Um, and yet the one time they have an opportunity to put a swastika in the film where you have the one student in the classroom who's like on the hour left in the front wearing like a Hiller youth uniform, and he's got an armband on, I'm pretty sure it's just an X on the armband and not a swastika. Mm-hmm. It's like they, they yep. still like kind of walk it just back mm-hmm. from being like, you know, clearly like that offensive. And it, again, you kind of wonder, I guess that's probably the cabaret kind of component of it, just yeah. scandalous enough. But yeah, there, there's a kind of a weird sort of, is, is he kind of, is this an allusion to the Third Reich or is that just like you would in a, a sort of, um, Oh gosh, the great dictator sort of sense, right? It's just a generalized baddie. In this I think that I think that's it because you've got two other characters that end up tied on crosses and crucifixes, mm-hmm. and one of them is just carrying it around at the end like a signpost. And it's just yeah. let me just throw in as much iconography that will make people slightly uncomfortable and get right up to the edge, and then not do anything with it. Much like when you throw people off the cliff of doom or whatever in the hell it's called, it doesn't really do anything. It just moves them off the set, like it. There is no point. It's just let me put it up there because it'll make you think there's a point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what about the musical numbers? Which one stood out to you all? I mean, I've talked about the the Satan one. And when Danny Elfman comes on, I think he totally eats that scene up. And it's great. That's an awesome song. It's exactly what I would expect from him. It's totally period for the, for what they're trying to do. But what other ones stood out to you all? The classroom scene, the ABC song, is is one of my favorites in the movie. I think that one still holds up pretty well. The scene where the father, uh, Mr. Hercules, is going to the, the tar pit is really, really, really well done. And if you figure that a lot of those dancers, even in like Southern California, wherever they made this, um, where you would have had a lot of sort of extra talent around, I thought they really, really nailed the choreography on that. That was my favorite scene in the movie when when Pa Hercules goes to the tar pit factory to report for work and they have the musical sequence and the whistle blows and everyone um, at the same time picks up their cigarette and lights it and blows up the tar pit factory, which launches him into the sixth dimension. I thought it was brilliant. I really, really, really appreciated that scene. I thought, and it wasn't grotesque. It wasn't offensive. It was like, it was almost relatable. It was the only scene in the movie that I laughed because I was like, I could feel the drudgery of like going to a job and everyone's doing the same thing every day. And then the whistle blows and people pick up their cigarette and the ending is that it just blows up. And I'm like, how 
satisfying. <laughs> uh, maybe, <laughs> and maybe the comment there is that like, if you're an artist, sometimes you need to do things like this where there's not a shooting script. There's not a schedule. There's not a call sheet. It's all hands on deck. We figure it out as we go. We just, we're just making it up and we're making art happen. And the freeing exercise of that sometimes can be liberating for creators and things like that. I mean, there were, when I was in bands and played and stuff, there were times we would get together and literally just count to four and just see if we could find the same key and stuff sometimes came out of it. Sometimes nothing did, but for 10 minutes, it was good to kind of noodle that out of yourself and then get down to what you were trying to do. And I don't know if he was trying to do that or not, but clearly everyone involved in this was bought into it and wanted to participate in that kind of activity. Yeah, just the, the sheer, I mean, I think I'd heard somewhere that like at some point the when it was the Mystic Nights of Oingo Boingo, it was when it was like a sort of theater troupe sort of scale, it had like dozens of people in it or something, at least was the sort of line I always heard on it. Um, and, and you can really get a, like a sense from this of how much sort of, at least within a certain community, how much sort of like cultural cash this like, like Richard Elfman was able to like muster at a time. And again, you know, so much of it is, and I always misremembered this about it. It was always like for us, the Danny Elfman movie, right? And of course he's like the devil in it. And that's like one of the most captivating sort of scenes. This is like a really Richard Elfman kind of movie. And like, I, I may be imbibing his stuff all day long and I wouldn't know it. Um, but you know, the, the, ability for him to get so many really talented people to kind of pull together to do some really elaborate work on what must have felt like a very weird sort of high school set production is really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. No, it totally is. And even Danny Elfman talking about wanting to change the direction of the band into something that was a little more commercial. And as he put it, I was used to touring with a semi or two full of things. And I just really wanted to get a band together that I could throw everything in a van and we go set up and play in an hour. And he said, so this was my way of sort of letting go of all of what I'd been doing for a decade. And then now doing what, you know, people knew is Oingo Bongo in the eighties. Right. I read some place where he's actually they're still actually doing live action versions of this and that wow. Richard Elfman is making an appearance at the end to barbecue for folks or, you know, <laughs> I, I think I read that somewhere and I just thought that was kind of funny. I mean, this is definitely the kind of movie that would have the Rocky Horror Picture Show kind mm -hmm. of experience where it's it's definitely not something you said to just watch and try to review for a you know a podcast, yet we've done it. So yay, congratulations. But <laughs> it's it's something that you have to consume with other people, I, I think. So I could see this becoming a Alamo draft house kind of experience, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Katie and Josh, what are yours for Forbidden Zone? Katie? Uh, I will do a medium popcorn. I would have done a small popcorn if I had only watched it once, but I'm glad I gave it a second shot. So, medium popcorn. Uh, I'll do a medium popcorn um, and maybe a large popcorn if you're going to watch it with friends. And <laughs> maybe have a beer or two first or something. I got to join you in the medium popcorn, which is an elevated thing because I went into this like two minutes into it. I was like, oh, okay, small popcorn. That's so I can just move that out of my head. Now I can just take it in. And small popcorn can be, there's, there are so bad it's good. And we've given smalls to stuff, but given them a pass. This is a medium where I would actually say it's a compliment to how this movie even achieved that. It's amazing for what it is. And for, again, it does not have a point. 
there is no point. That is the point. And so if you're into that kind of thing, and again, you want to get together a group of friends, I highly recommend you get together with friends that on some level appreciate um, expressionism and musical theater and avant-garde presentation and aren't looking for a through line, you know, and aren't looking to have a conversation like if you watch something like Inception, you know, and then want to break it down or, or even, you know, something historical, go watch the Battle of the Bulge and then try to, you know, pick all that apart for its accuracy and its portrayal or whatever. Um, this not That's not this movie. This movie is a group experience and it is a fun thing. And it is, I, I actually was having this conversation with myself going, is this the worst thing I've ever seen? And the answer is no, because the worst thing I've ever seen is still after last season <laughs> for uh, tons of reasons. People can go back to the archives and listen to this actually has a through line in that there is no through line. So once you know that you just jump in the pool and enjoy it for what it is. So media popcorn for me as well. Been an absolute blast. Katie and Josh, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back on and do something. I don't know. Maybe just a little more mainstream next time. We'll see. But this was a fun yeah. first show to jump into. And folks, thanks for listening to our latest episode. You can find our archives for the podcast feed at filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show. Follow the show's social media at filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We appreciate the support. For Katie and Josh, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.